Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. everyone welcome to lunch agenda on full service radio we're broadcasting live from the line hotel in dc and i am your host julie kurtz filling in for kiko born through the end of 2019 lunch agenda is a podcast that brings to light lesser known parts of the food system previous shows have featured an array of topics from food access, distribution, investment, and guests like Leah Penniman, Mark Bittman, Marion Nessel, Julia Tertian, Michael Twitty. You can find all these interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.org. So listeners, let me break it down. Soil is sexy. Mmm. Mmm, sexy soil. Mmm. Mmm, that voice is following me all day. So we have arrived at our hashtag Sexy Soils episode in this Eating the Green New Deal series, in which we're exploring how a more sustainable, healthy, equitably inclusive food system might actually come about. And today we're going to talk about one of the most important players in our food system, soil. Now, I know we all thought that soil was kind of like dirt, but them be some fighting words in many circles. So soil is a living ecosystem with some some near near magical powers that many of us have never fully considered. On On the first farm where I ever worked, I remember one of the farm operators telling me, oh really, sometimes I think I'm actually just a soil farmer, which I think that point his wife gave him this oh great this again look and you know we actually need to money make money right from the food not the soil that we sell so but but perhaps by the end of this episode we'll discover that both of them are right and a little shout out to Lise and David Abaz in northern Minnesota farmers need to make money off the food fuel and fiber they produce but the soil has value be far beyond its ability to produce more healthy, delicious, and ample food. So by the end of this episode, who knows, maybe you too will want to become a soil farmer. So with that, let me tell you a little bit more about today's guests. Andrea Beish and Stephen Tucker. So Andrea, Dr. Andrea Beish is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture, where she teaches undergraduate courses in crop management. Her research focuses on the benefits and trade-offs of diversified cropping systems, including perennials and cover crops. And if you think diversified cropping systems doesn't instinctively sound sexy, listeners, just wait. Andrea Beisch holds a a biology degree from Fordham University, um, studied applied climate science at Columbia, and a PhD in agronomy and sustainable agriculture from Iowa State. Now, because we are interested in bringing field, soil field experiments to real life, that is the the practical implementation by our noble stewards of the soil, this episode would not be complete 
without hearing from our farmers. So we are really lucky today to have Stephen Tucker, an agriculture production specialist, with us today. Steve farms in southwest Nebraska on the Colorado border. He has a highly diversified farm with very progressive soil management practices. He's also currently part of the governor-appointed task force that is developing a, a soil health initiative for the state of Nebraska. So Steve and Andrea, it is such a pleasure to have you both on the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Great, great. Um, so Andrea, I'm going to kick off with you. You've spent your research career thinking about soil and the things um, the things that it can do for us. So it can grow things, it can sequester carbon out of the air, uh, like a big flat vacuum cleaner, it can hold water. And throughout your career, you've been researching how different so-called management practices impact what the soil can do. So could you tell us, one, what are some of the soil properties that you've focused on most? And two, why are those properties so important? Sure. So what I've focused a good amount of work on in my career really has to do with water uh, and how water moves through the soil and stays in the soil, right? And so um, you already mentioned some of the other important functions that soil can provide for us, right? So farmers need their soil to grow a crop. Um, They need, in order to do that, that soil to move nutrients like Uh, carbon through it, like nitrogen, phosphorus, the things that plants need to grow, right? So those are all really important things. Of course, water um, happens to be the one that I have thought the most about in my research. And the reason that is, um, you know, as you said in my bio, I have a background in applied climate science. And so um, as I was learning more about kind of future change and increasing rainfall variability, it was kind of hard for me to shake this um, realization that um, we're going to have to figure out ways for soil to respond to more of these increasing rain events, right? So mm. um, if we also just take a step back to one thing I like to think about, and you really, you know, promoted me here is um, needing to make the soil sexier. But the way I like to think about soil and the way that I define it is that it's really the living um, skin of the earth, right? So it's mm. the interface uh, of biology, geology, <clears throat> Uh, climate and time, right? So those are all the soil forming factors that we talk about in a Soils 101 class that I think are really interesting from a big picture. But, you know, those same forces that create the soil, right? Climate is one of those forces that helps shape soil. So you're going to have different soils in different areas in part because of how much, you know, heat and water that soil has been exposed to over like geologic time. Uh Um, But those same forces that form the soil are the same factors that can contribute to its degradation and change. So I've really spent a lot of time thinking about water impacts on soil and how we can um, get more water to move through the soil and stay there. Gotcha. I think about uh, even you mentioned that is the the skin of the earth and thinking about even the human body, which is the skin is our largest organ and uh, often one of the more overlooked. So... Maybe some... I like that. I will have to <laughs> use that. Okay. See, yeah, some seems As an important reminder. Yeah, metaphor in, in that. Um, so, Steve, you farm something like 10 or 11 different grains. Is that right? And you also keep livestock? 
Correct. Okay. Very diversified. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about your farm and how long you've been farming, how long your family has been farming that land? Well, my grandfather started back when he was a youngster. This family moved out here to western Nebraska and put their uh, claim to some ground and started farming. And it was basically uh, they sod busted, tore up some ground. And back in those days, it was mainly uh, wheat. And then it turned into wheat summer fallow where you planted wheat one year and half of your ground was in summer fallow to save the water. And then Mm. you worked that ground constantly for planting the next wheat crop. And it just went 50-50. And then uh, when I got into college back in the uh, 90s and when I got out of college, we started doing some no-till corn, and that would help save the moisture. Kind of did it a little bit more rotation, give us another option. Mm-hmm. And could you explain but, for our listeners, what does no-till corn mean? What does that mean? No-till is, if you look across the prairies or across a field, Mother Nature mm-hmm. really doesn't have a mechanism to till. There's no way to flip the soil over. Uh-huh. And I think what you see today in Maybe some groundhogs or some animals, but pretty much no. Right. Yeah. And, what, you know, and the tillage that is there is earthworms, things that are naturally part of the ecosystem. Yeah. And, and so I think what you're seeing in the soil health movement is a lot of people are looking at that saying, how do I mimic nature? How do I mm. come up with ways that look at what nature does and, and emulate that? <clears throat> and... Nature doesn't till, so why do I think I have to? Mm. And there's there's all kinds of uh, mechanisms for doing farming where we don't need to till. Yeah. And we can plant right in there. That, you know, you keep the residue, you keep the soil covered, which is what Mother Nature likes to do. Mm-hmm. And you can plant right into all of the residue and the trash that's on the surface of the ground. You keep it covered so it doesn't get hot. You know, the, mm-hmm. the organisms that live underneath like that ground covered because it protects them from the heat and things like that. The water infiltration is so much better. And where I live, water is is key. We don't get enough of it so Uh that when we do get it, it's not how much we get, it's how much we get into the soil. Hmm. And when we think like that, then that changes the way we farm. So I hear you... Yeah, go ahead. So I hear you talking about keeping the soil cool. I I hear you talking about water infiltration. Um... Are there other things that uh, you you want your soil to do and, and other characteristics that you, as a farmer, want your soil to have? Well, that's a great question. And what I love about that question is when I was in college many years ago, the, the focus was on the physical properties of soil. It was on the chemical properties. But we never really looked at the biological properties. Hmm. And... I think you're seeing more with the soil health is bringing how do we stimulate the biology to work with it instead of trying to play God all the time. And so if we can have a healthier biologically active system, then everything, you got to have healthier soil. Healthier soil leads to healthier plants, to healthier animals and humans. Hmm, so we're, we're sort of looking so, to nature as a teacher. Absolutely. And so that's what... And that's what's happened in our farm. It, you know, when I started, we started out with wheat and summer fallow. 
Well, that had tillage and that had one crop. Uh That's why I've progressed to 11 different crops now, a lot of different variations. I've got broadleaves, peas, chickpeas, Mm. to some soybeans occasionally, the different beans. I had mung beans this year, to, you know, corn, wheat, rye, oats, triticale, and do you still uh, leave any of that land fallow now, or are you nothing, just rotating no, between different different crops? Everything gets rotated around as different crops. Um, we even do some experimenting with uh, intercropping, with, where we have the crop, and then we put something else with it, to mm-hmm. uh, companion planting, where we have two crops in the same field, just trying to add more diversity to emulate what Mother Nature does huh. naturally in her environment. So does this mean you do a lot of experimentation on your own farm? I mean, you've, you went from two crops or, you know, one crop and, and, and fallow land with your grandfather to now having a whole variety. So it sounds like, yeah, you know, sort of like Andrea in the lab here, you're doing a lot of experimentation and, you know, just on your own land over the years. Absolutely. Everything we do is an experiment. It either works or it fails. And if you're not failing, you're not trying. Hmm. I appreciate that. If you're not failing, you're not trying. So, Andrea, coming back to you, you and, and your colleague, Dr. Dr. Marcia Delange, have just published a paper that's, that's made a really good splash about how different management practices, some of the things that we heard Steve talk about, like no-till um, uh, and cover crops, other things improve water infil- infiltration. So he was saying that's really important where he lives, getting that water into the soil and, and keeping it there. Um, and you did a, a big meta-analysis of roughly 90 studies or so to see how conventional management practices, the things, what we call conventional practices, compare to some of the alternatives. So um, could you tell us a little bit more about that and, and maybe tell us what is the difference between conventional, how did you compare conventional and then the alternatives? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, my former colleague at the Union of Concerned Scientists and I, Marcia Delange, worked on this analysis that was recently published and it has gotten more uh, attention than maybe I had expected. Just, I think that, you know, especially in Nebraska, we've just been through in 2019 a very wet year, including Mm -hmm. the historic and tragic and um, very expensive and damaging floods that we had in the wintertime in March were very unusual. But I, I think that the idea of how do we get water not to just move over the landscape and take nutrients and soil with it is really resonating with people right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what we did, I mean, this started with, um, I don't know, my interest again in water infiltration um, and soil water and thinking about, you know, what kind of management should we be thinking about moving into the future with more rainfall variability? And just sort of understanding that there are some practices that we have, I think, studied more and paid more attention to, and maybe there are things that we Mm -hmm. should expand and think more about. And so to answer your question about how we thought about conventional versus alternative, um, I know I think those words can kind of have a connotation to them, and sometimes people get really caught up in the vocabulary, but really what we were thinking about was what are, you know, conventional is sort of what more people are doing versus not, right? So that's kind of Mm -hmm. the way we tried to think about the comparisons. And so we looked at five different practices in this analysis to 
um, basically look at what are some of these principles related to soil health. So when we think about soil health, we typically think about a lot of the things we've already been talking about on the episode, right? We think about minimizing soil disturbance. So we looked at no-till compared to um, a conservation till or um, conventional tillage. So it's just kind of like a degree of disturbing the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at crop rotations compared to um, just growing one crop at a time. Okay, so it's kind of like what Steve was talking about, just having wheat or rotating these crops, you know, various crops year after year. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We looked at um, perennial crops compared to annual crops because most of the crops that we grow in the U.S., we grow a good amount of alfalfa or other hay crops. Um, It's about 10% of U.S. acres. And those are perennial. Those stay in the soil year after year. So crops that would, yes you would plant once and not and and harvest over you know a number of years right so um not that you would plant just once per year which is again majority of crops that we grow um in the US and especially in the uh corn belt where i am in eastern nebraska right i mean mm-hmm. it's corn in the spring harvest in the fall soybean the next year right so it's just annual crops um we also looked at cover crops um compared to no cover crops so cover crops are a plant that you would grow when the soil is otherwise bare to protect it. Mm. Um, And according to USDA numbers, um, in the 2017 Ag Census, cover crops um, only made up about or less than 10% of of acres. So um, it's fair to say, I think, that a lot of the things that we were looking at are less common than the conventional practices. So that's how we kind of group them. And then the fifth thing that we looked at was um, experiments that had grouped or that had looked at integrating livestock on croplands. Okay, so we had actually published another paper that looked at some different um, grazing practices of um, and what that impact was on infiltration. But this was just about croplands. So if you added livestock to cropland, like which is pretty common in um, a place like eastern Nebraska or in this region where people will have um, cattle graze on corn stalks, let's say at the end of the season to get a little bit of extra feed. Um, and, and is that sort of like after it's been harvested or is, yes. yeah, okay. typically after harvest. Yeah. So they get a so, treat. They, they let them run wild in the cornfields. I don't know if I'd say run wild, but okay. run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully not run wild. Um, so we looked at no till compared to tillage, crop rotation compared to not perennials compared to annual crops, cover crops, no cover crops, and then livestock versus um, just croplands. And so, so basically when you do an analysis like this, you're limited by what other people have published. So um, we looked for studies with those kinds of experimental designs and where they had also measured infiltration rates. So infiltration, again, is the rate at which water moves into the soil. Again, that's a really critical process for capturing water when we get it in, in heavy rain events, right? As yeah. Steve said, where he is, they want to capture every inch of water they can. Yeah, um, and so that we that would that matter together. for droughts as well. To it, it, that how long it how how well you're able to capture the soil, and then when when you don't have rain for a, a long time too. It, exactly, exactly. So if you get three inches of rain in a day, and then no rain for you know six weeks, then especially if it's a critical point in the growing season, like mm-hmm. you know for crops that you plant in the spring, harvest in the fall, if that's happening in July or August, and mm-hmm. and those are typically drier periods in our climate where I am. So you want to capture every, you know, every inch of that rain, every, every bit of it. Um, 
so so we put all those that that data together and basically what we found was that the practices that led to the most consistent and largest improvements in water getting into the soil were those uh, were the cover crops and the perennial crops, right, or the perennial practices. Mm. Um, and that was really interesting to us, right, because I think it goes back to what um, Steve was talking about with stimulating um, soil biology and um, possibly in improving soil structure, <clears throat> that those continuous roots in the soil seem to have the biggest impact. So it wasn't just about minimizing soil disturbance. It wasn't just about integrating livestock or rotating crops. While we did think all of those things could contribute to improving infiltration, mm -hmm. it was really what we found the roots in the soil to be the most critical feature, right? So if you have those yeah. roots in the soil, you're continuously creating a food source for the um, microbial activity in the soil to live on. Yeah. Um, and as they live and die, they enrich the soil um, and stimulate that activity. And again, um, learning from Mother Nature in that, that you know, right. you look at nature, she, even nature's not doing crop rotations, but the keeping roots in the ground. Right. Yeah. Uh, Steve and Andrea, I'm wondering if, if when you think about conventional, and, and Andrea, you mentioned less than, less than 10% of, of, of U.S. cropland is has uses cover crops um and i i think i i glanced a little bit at N nebraska um I, and it, it looks like about half nebraska uses a no-till or maybe a little bit more even if you include conservation tillage so less tillage but it's only three or four percent of nebraska that uses cover crops does that sound about right to you guys that sounds about right to me, according to, you know, the latest USDA egg census numbers. So we, you know, one of my wishes is that we did have more continuous data on information like this. So mm. we have two data points on cover crops for the U.S. from the 2012 and the 2017 egg census, which is great. Mm. Um, but according to those numbers for Nebraska, it's about 4% of um, cropland that has a cover crop. But on a more positive note about 50% um, of cropland that is using no-till practices, which from the numbers I've looked at, that's higher than any other state in the huh. what we typically think of as the upper Midwest Corn Belt. Yeah. And and just kind of, of a, from a ground perspective, when you think of whatever you said, what everyone else is doing, conventional is kind of what everyone's doing. And does... Does conventional feel like it's conventional in Nebraska? Or, I mean, you've got half people doing, you know, no-till practices. Is there a movement to, to, to think out of the box, out of what everyone's kind of been doing? And, and I know, Andrea, you work with students as well. So I don't know if, if for them, uh, do they mostly come from conventional farms and do they expect to follow in that? Or is there some, are, are folks looking for new options? Yeah, there's a lot of good questions there. Um, I would say many of the students that come through the College of Agriculture in, you know, many of the land grants, including Steve, he's a great person for us to have this conversation with, come to think of it, because he was a graduate of my department. Um, and we had a nice conversation, Steve and I, recently about some of his experiences and what we might be doing to stimulate some, some new creative thinking from, from students here. But I would say typically most students do come from um, farms. Mm -hmm. Are they 
conventional in the way we might think of them. I think a lot are, that they're growing right now, corn and soybean. Um, I think most students are pretty um, on board with, or um, I I would say many do understand the benefits of no-till. I think that, you know, there are plenty who would recognize that that's not something that they've found that is as successful on their farm. Um, But I think that most, at least from a tillage standpoint, recognize the benefits of minimizing disturbance where you can. Um, Cover crops, I would say, too, that I have a lot of students who are really curious about cover crops, but, you know, we have students, again, who, if you've grown up on a farm, then they're going to be, they're going to approach these things from a really practical standpoint. Is it going to work? Is it going to save us time and money, right? Right. Um, And so I would say that, you know, getting um, students interested in things like this, it's got to, they've got to see how they can do it and how it's going to work. So there's really like practical considerations about anything different, which is is totally reasonable, but I also mm-hmm. think it can kind of limit some of the creativity. But I would love to hear some of Steve's thoughts, Steve's thoughts on this too, because he is, you know, someone who's come and done things differently and, um, yeah, he's yeah. been through this and then done things differently. Steve, you've been called on. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, I think with the soil health movement and people just looking for a better way, I mean, for me, um, to go wheat, to summer follow the economics today and today's wheat prices and the way agriculture is gone, you're not going to survive. Mm. And I'm just going to, I mean, let's just be honest, the essence of society today is to make a profit, whether you're working for someone, you want to make enough money to put money for retirement, or being an independent person on a farm, you still want to make a profit. And so uh, that kind of helps drive the decisions a little bit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we can look and see that no-till lets me save moisture, and I can do multiple crops differently. You know, the market back in the day, 25, 30 years ago, let you do wheat summer fallow, but I don't think that's a viable alternative today. Now, you can raise some really good wheat on summer fallow ground, but at the end of the day, uh, I mean, I'll put my profits lately up against anybody, but I'm I'm kind of an anomaly in the way I operate. Mm-hmm. So that kind of helps drive the decision-making to looking at cover crops. Where do they play? How do, they, how do I incorporate them in so I can still maintain a profit, and what's the purpose of them? You know, when I've incorporated livestock into where we're, what we're doing today, I can put a cover crop in and I can let it graze. Mm. And I'm sequestering carbon with that. I'm helping the soil. I'm adding diversity. There's a lot of benefits, but am I using water also? Yes, but it's, it's all a management. It's a different skill set to manage those different enterprises and different ways that we do things now. Yeah. So, Steve, it sounds like, I mean, you're utilizing a lot of these these management practices that, that, that Andrea mentioned, that, that she looked Absolutely. at in this paper. You are, you're using no-till. You are using cover cropping. You are integrating with livestock. Um, are there other, I mean, you're even doing intercropping, so you're, you know, putting uh, different crops next to each other. I'm, I'm curious, how did, how did you become familiar with a lot of these management practices, and what, what incentivized you to to get started trying them out? I The first thing I saw was the uh, rainfall simulator, which should be mandatory for every 
person that is in agriculture. The rainfall simulator. Rainfall simulator. If you look okay. on YouTube, you can find videos of it. Okay, I hope all our uh, listeners are going to YouTube right now. Yep, and Dan Gillespie in Nebraska was the first guy I saw do that. And I think it was developed in Nebraska, if I remember right. And that really turned on the light bulbs for me and seeing what uh, no-till does versus conventional practices. Huh. That was the first thing. And then uh, started going to some conferences, no-till on the plains and... Uh, the uh, Colorado Conservation Tillage Association had a conference and started listening to all these guys that were farming like this out ahead of me. Mm. And I said, well, if they can do it, why can I do it? And I heard Gabe Brown say one time he used to wake up every morning thinking, what am I going to kill today? And that was kind of where I was at. And so <laughs> why do I wake up with what do I have to kill today? Why don't I wake up with how do I keep life going? That's what we want to do is promote life. And this changes the way I, you know, changes my paradigms and the how I operate on the farm. Hmm. And were there significant barriers for you that you had to get, whether that's cost or just resources, education, otherwise, that, that made it difficult to, to start implementing these, these different things? I would say the biggest barrier was right between my ears. Okay. That's what really stands in the way. Fear, what I tell myself. You know, and, and I, it's not like I just converted the whole farm one day and, and mm-hmm. changed everything. I did things in small steps and saw the benefits from it and then hmm. just expanded on it. And I'm still expanding today. I grew faba beans one year. Guess what? Faba beans don't grow Ooh. in western Nebraska. Wow. They're delicious. So there are, there are failures. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to make the failures small and learn from them and then... Yeah. And keep searching for the yeah. next thing. I would just jump in and add, you know, you asked the question, I don't know that I answered it completely, Julie, about, you know, are people thinking about alternatives or students thinking about alternatives? I definitely think with the economic situation for agriculture, you know, there's obviously, it's, it's been a tough year. I mean, you're continue, I continue to see news reports about this, just, you know, where we are with the flooding, with trade uncertainty, with commodity prices being low, that mm-hmm. there are you know, a number of operations that are likely living off of their equity, right? That they're not making a lot of money, um, but have money saved so they can, you know, weather out a few potentially bad years. But if we continue to have bad years, you know, what does that mean for operations that are growing the major commodities that are not making a lot of money? So, you know, to Steve's point about, you know, corn fallow not being a very viable, or wheat fallow, excuse me, not being a very good economic situation now, I think that, you know, we could be moving into that with corn and soybean. And so I definitely think people are Mm. more interested in alternatives now. But again, like when I think about my students and some of the discussions that we have in class, I think that it is a, you know, it takes time to really, you know, consider something that might be a big change and think about how you implement it. And something we've talked about in class that I actually mentioned you, Steve, recently in class, and I said, you know, a lot of these progressive farmers that I meet and talk to say that they just don't really care what other people think. You know, I think we have to recognize that change is really hard for all of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you hear lots of, or I I should say you, I mean we in the world that I kind of live in, this sort of soil health cover crop world, a lot of producers say things like, you know, my neighbor used to think I was crazy, but then they started asking me questions. Like, this is an anecdote mm. I've heard many times. Um, 
but I've told my students, like, the earlier in our lives we just stop caring about what other people think and we just do what we huh. are passionate about or what we think is right, um, then the better off we'll be. You know, that's not just true in farming. It's like, true in all aspects of our life. But I also think the small steps, too, is an important thing to keep in mind. Like, I would never recommend to a producer, like, you know, if you have a 1,000 acres and you're interested in cover crops, like, start small. Start on, hmm. you know... 10 acres and see how it goes until you get more comfortable with scaling it up. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I come back to this point that when we're thinking about, you know, what makes someone like Steve different than many other producers, then, you know, I mean, I just, change is really hard is an important thing to keep in mind for all of us in many aspects of life. In many aspects. Well, I think that's a great place to just pause and take a quick break. We can let uh, listeners just kind of sit with this, uh, meta, this metaphysical reality, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda. Listeners, I am your host, Julie Kurtz. We are broadcasting from Washington, D.C., talking today with Dr. Andrea Beish uh, and a diversified grain and livestock farmer, Stephen Tucker of Nebraska. Um, So Nebraska has had um, a big year when it comes to soil health. So this year, uh, the state legislature passed... Uh, uh, the creation of a Healthy Soils Task Force, uh, comprised of 15 members, all appointed by the governor. Steve is one of them, representing various stakeholders. So the department, the Nebraska Department of Agriculture, uh, Nebraska Pro- Department of Natural Resource Districts, um, Production Agriculture, that's people like Steve, Agribusiness, Academia, Environmental Organizations, and even representatives from the state legislature's Agricultural Committee and Natural Resources Committee committee are serving on that task force in a non-voting position. So, you know, there's clearly buy-in from from various levels in Nebraska. Um, And this team is tasked with developing a comprehensive Healthy Soils Initiative and Action Plan to submit to the legislature by the end of, of 2020. So I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think that, why was, why was this the year that this initiative was proposed and, and signed into law in Nebraska? Steve, do you want to start out? Um, that's, uh, I'm trying to think if I know the answer to that question. I know Senator <laughs> Gregor to introduce that bill, and uh, I think he had some some university guys help him kind of draft that and throw that together so that we had some kind of direction for the state to go with uh, implementing some of these things that we've been talking about. Mm. And um, we've had a couple meetings. We're really in the uh, initial phases of just getting it put together. We're just kind of first task was to kind of explore what was going on across the country as to what other states have been doing and, I think throughout that research, there's a few states that have put things into play, um, but there's also a lot of states that haven't done anything, and some of the people that I've talked to 
would like to do something, and they're really looking at what Nebraska's doing and putting it huh. together too. So yeah, we're just trying to uh, develop a strategy of what direction we're going to head. Yeah, I asked another guest some weeks ago if this was simply the year of sexy soils. Mm. <laughs> mm, sexy soil. Mm. All right, that song is back. It's been following me all day. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, so it, maybe that is on some level uh, true for Nebraska, that, that healthy soils are, are catching on. Um, I, I also wondered, um, obviously, Andrea's research has tremendous implications for, for how water moves through soil, for, for floods and droughts. And, and Nebraska, as you mentioned, had a really painful year in 2019 a dam collapsed, thousands of residents were had to evacuate, and there was a tremendous destruction of property, um, a state of emergency, and, and, and I think the governor said this is the most extensive damage that, that the state has ever experienced. So this is a, a really heavy year and in that terms, and, and I'm wondering, is there an expectation that the, soil, the Healthy Soil Task Force, well, well, obviously they cannot you know, immediately solve flood challenges, but, but with widespread um, healthy soil practices, that they, these kinds of things could help protect Nebraska and build more resiliency in, into both rural agriculture communities, but also uh, its cities, which were impacted by these floods. So I'm wondering, do you think that the, the task force... Um, there's an expectation that um, that this partnership will will be a part of protecting against extreme weather. Well, I think uh, Andrea's work and that shows the value of if we can get people on board to switch from conventional practices of the old to just newer. Uh, the, I guess the uh, the way Mother Nature does it. I think we'll see all kinds of impact uh, that maybe we haven't even thought about. Hmm. And, you know, the the two aspects to it is flooding and how do we deal with these major events like this, which are, you know, rare compared to water quality and sending, you know, every year the water quality that goes down the river how do we mm-hmm. affect that uh, water is huge whether it's flooding to water quality to whatever it may be and so that that is really a, a driving mechanism to some of the things that we're going to implement into the soil health task force also yeah i i saw um the the meeting notes are up online and so um one of some of the the, the kind of key points that were brought up in the last meeting were we're keeping a positive voice um Stressing that this is these are non-regulatory solutions, so carrot not stick, um, and and there was a big focus on water quality. Water quality benefits all aspects of societies, um, and really selling the benefits of healthy soil. Um, so, uh, I, you know, thinking about future generations and um, the, there's not in in that list. Um, conversation about the climate crisis or even about using, you, you know, not, there's nothing explicitly about using soil practices to help buffer extreme weather um, impacts or, or flooding, anything like that. And, and maybe that's part of that, that emphasis of keeping that positive voice. And I don't know if, do you think that the, 
that the task force is intentionally trying to avoid negative motivators? Do you think that's important for Nebraska? Um, I think that is the forefront part of what we want to do because if you want to sequester carbon through agricultural practices, through plants, um, utilizing that, if you want to do it for the environmental purposes or if you want to do it for increasing your organic matter and the benefits that will come for your soil, Mm -hmm. then focus on what it is that you want to focus on. But ultimately, that's what we all want to achieve. We just may have different reasons behind it. And that's why we're not just limiting it to certain aspects versus climate change versus uh, soil health benefits for the for the farmer, the, the ag producer. Let's just leave it open for everyone so everyone gets the benefit. And this is a win-win for the state of Nebraska and ultimately for the entire country and the world. Yeah. Yeah, we're using this, I mean, this, this podcast series, which is titled Eating the Green New Deal. So we use the, the Green New Deal as a, as a jumping off point for this series. But we're, um, and, and there are a lot of policymakers right now that are, are looking to solutions from agriculture um, for the climate crisis. Um, but I, I, I hear you saying that that may not necessarily be enticing to everyone in Nebraska. And in some ways, you know, it's, you can, it is much easier to think about your local water quality than thinking about um, saving the world by sequestering carbon. That, that's, that's a hard thing for most people, I think, to wrap your mind around. But thinking about in your own community, your own water, your own, that, I think that's probably an easier shift um. I agree, and I think if you want to have the benefits, then let's just don't limit it to climate change because that climate change doesn't speak to everyone. Mm. But a healthier soil for the purpose of sequestering carbon will. Yeah. And then ultimately that will get everybody what they want, and that is a win-win, and that's what we're about is making everything a win-win. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and or a healthier soil for, you know, dealing with droughts or floods, right? This is obviously a method that I'm experiencing right now that is resonating with a lot of people. So I I think, you know, it's something, you know, these questions you're asking, Julie, that I sometimes struggle with having a background in applied climate science and, you know, do you lead with climate change or do you lead with healthy soil, weather variability, um, I think it is really important to meet people where they are if you want to bring them along, right? And so, you know, I agree with Steve's point of, you know, we want to get people on board. And if the end, at the end of the day, we can all agree on, you know, protecting the soil, then, you know, and if that's about water quality or climate change, I mean, I just, I think you do have to be pragmatic and meet people where they are. And I would just say in general, I'm, you know, really encouraged by, all of the discussion around agriculture in the context of climate, I think um, there's just more interest in, you know, I've not been in this world for, you know, about, I've been in the world for about a decade of thinking about climate change and agriculture, but even in that decade, like this is the highest level of interest really that I've seen where agriculture could really be brought along into these broader conversations and hopefully, you know, seeing more interest in soil health 
um, hopefully that means like more research activity, more support for um, producers and yeah. um, education and outreach initiatives. I mean, I think that's all positive, but, yeah. you know, it could start from just, I think, being practical and meeting people where they are. And do you think, um, you know, you are working right now with the next generation of farmers. Do you think this, you know, we, we lifted up farmers for years as sort of the ones that, that feed the world. And do you think that that the young Nebraskans that you're working with, that they're ready for an identity shift of sort of the ones who save the world from extreme weather like floods or from climate crisis? Do you think that's sort of in, I mean, for di- because the, probably the interest is different for different generations. I think in when I interact with students, I don't, I have not experienced pushback about climate yet. So when I talk about meeting people where they are, I mean, it depends on the audience that I'm talking to, but in my classes, I mean, we, we talk about climate change and what are projections for Nebraska. Yeah. And I, you know, do an kind of informal survey with my spring class, which has over 100 students, and I ask about climate and, you know, if they're worried about it. And I do this at the beginning of the semester. And I would say the two years I've done this, I've not had more than a handful of students who've responded with, oh, well, the climate's always been changing or some Mm -hmm. kind of line like this. So that's not a scientific poll, um, but it's only a handful out of maybe 200 students. So um, if that tells you something, I think that there's a high level of interest and um, concern perhaps, but... um, I don't know. St- undergraduates no. are funny, right? Like, they- I don't ever leave a class and have students, like, jump up and down and hoot and holler and give me high fives and stuff like this, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's <laughs> sometimes hard to know when you talk about things that I'm super passionate about if they're... They're just coming into their absorbing skin. ...absorbing it or, like, yeah. you know, you just hope you've, like, planted a seed and gotten them to think about an issue and yeah. maybe that, you know, seed will grow later, so... So we hopefully that answers your question. No, it absolutely does. It's really interesting to hear. Um, and I, I, we have to close out. And so I'm wondering if you have a, just a quick one line action item because I think it's very interesting to hear from you from your place in the food system. What's one thing that listeners can do in their own lives to make the food system better? Feel free, just jump in. Well, I'll begin if, uh, I guess my first thing, my only, my one sentence thing would be realize how much soil impacts your life. Okay. Okay. Share this podcast. Soil impacts your life. There you go. Andrea, do you have a, something to add to Steve that? kind of stole my one thing. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> great minds think alike. Say, you know, if you just tell tell your neighbor that soil is important. Okay. All right. Go tell someone. Go tell someone. The first someone. thing we got to do is be more aware that this is a natural resource that I think does not get nearly enough attention in the same way that water and air do. Sure. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that our listeners can follow you. Um, we have uh, Andrea on Twitter at, at Andrea Bache, so A-N-D-R-E-A-B-A-S. C-H-E, and then Steve at Tykerman1, T-Y-K-E-R-M-A-N. So with that, um, I am your host, Julie Kurtz. You can follow me at Soil Soul Food on Twitter. Um, 
And we just want to thank you, Andrea and Steve, once again so much. Thanks for tuning in, talking with us about sexy soils. My pleasure. All thank right. Thank you. Thank you.